Today's reading is from the book of John, chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good morning, church. Good morning. All right, I'll take it. I'll take it. Appreciate it. Um, a couple of things. So in just a few weeks, um, my oldest son uh, will cross the life-changing threshold into teenagedom. Uh, and his mother and I, uh, it's, it's stirred a lot of different emotions in sort of all of us, uh, me, Lisa, and him. We've sort of anticipated this thing happening. Um, it, stirred, it stirred in me some excitement, but also some apprehension. It's, it's kind of like the, the, the feeling that I would get if I was watching like the circus coming to town. Uh, where I'm, I'm very excited about it, can't wait, lots of hope, can't wait to see the, you know, the acrobatics and the spectacular that's going to happen, a lot of excitement in that, but also apprehension, like what if like the trapeze artist doesn't make it, what if the tightrope shakes, like what if the lion is hungry that day and is like, you know, I don't think I want to let the lion tamer's head just stay in my mouth today, like I think I'll, I'll take a bite of it, like there's sort of like this excitement, but also apprehension as I think I'm about to be the parent of of a teenager. Never done this before. I was talking with my son the other day about this and, and, and about um, uh, what he's facing and some of the challenges that he's going to face ahead, challenges academically and socially and, and bodily even. And as we were talking about it, um, I, I reminded him that, that even though all these things are coming and that you know, he's not sure what's going to happen on the other side of becoming a teenager, that he, um, that he doesn't have to worry about those things and he doesn't have to fear them. Uh, and when I was telling him that, he's looking at me with his disbelief. He's like, are you serious? What do you mean don't worry or fear? You've just laid out like all of this litany of things that will happen to me, around me, like with my peers, things that are going to happen with my body. Don't tell me about those things ever again. Like, you know, you just have, we've had these conversations and you've told me that, you know, that the world, it can be a hard place to live. What the heck do you mean that I don't need to fear or worry about this? And then as we were talking, our conversation sort of turned. It was really quite a tender moment for us. And, and uh, I told him that, that part of the reason why he didn't need to worry is because of who he is and his identity and where he'd come from. I, t I told a bunch of stories uh, about his family, and these were all stories that he had heard before. I told him uh, about his great-grandfather on his mother's side. I told him about Benito Rodriguez who began following Jesus and began pastoring in the early days of the communist Castro regime in Cuba. 
I told him how his great-granddad and his grandfather courageously were able to escape from a dictatorship in 1959 and how Poppy, as we call him, how Poppy faithfully pastored in Miami for 50 years. I reminded him of the story of how his pops and his Grammy, my, my folks, uh, hit a terribly tough patch where they were broke and poor and homeless. And I told him again how they were faithful to one another and to the things in front of them and how they were able to receive ge generosity uh, from friends and family and how they were able to carve out a new fruitful life even after a hard and rough start. And after telling him those stories and the stories uh, of his family and of his history, I told him that those stories that I just told you, they're actually your story too. That, that those stories, they actually flow through your own veins. And that he's part of a much larger story than just his own few years. I reminded him that he has a deep and rich identity and a beautiful God-given purpose. And because of that, the hard times, when they come like the constant pounding of waves on a seawall, that those things need not be feared. Each week at Christ City Church, this is actually our same purpose. Each week we gather to remember that we too, individually, that you individually and we communally, that we're a part of a great story that God is writing in the history of the world and in the history of your life. That we gather to retell the story of God's work that was done through his son Jesus and is secured and sustained by the unyielding power of the Holy Spirit. And every week when we gather here and in our small group gatherings as well, that the primary purpose is for us to remember, to remember what God has done and who we are to him and in him. We gather so that our, our hearts might be stirred by the Spirit of God, and that our wills might be righted, and our minds might be renewed by the good news that God loves us, that he rescued us, and that he lives in us. And our aim is to encourage and to remind one another to, to live in light of, in the care of, in the joy of, and in the momentum of, and in the assurance of that love. And so, th and so that's what we're doing here. And I, and I wanted to remind us of that again, because the passage that we're going to explore this morning, it's actually a bit of a technical one. And as we walk through some of the technicalities, it can be supremely helpful for us to remember our purpose. And that our purpose is to remember the God who loves us. The story that we'll look at, it comes from John chapter 8. And just to catch you up, if you're new to Christ City, or if this is one of your first times here, if you've been out for a bit, um, we're in a sermon series in John's gospel that we're calling Stories of Life. And the thesis that we're working uh, from is that uh, the gospel of John was written so that we might see that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the rescuer, the one who rescues humanity. He is the archetype hero by which all other heroes are measured because he is God who became a man and walked on earth, not in power and privilege, but in humility. That he's the one that came to right the wrongs of history of the human heart, not by dictatorship, but by sacrifice. At every turn in John's gospel, it's for us an invitation to see and believe and discover life as God intended for us, an invitation to start over, an invitation to see that life with Christ is not ill-fitting, an invitation to recover your life by surrendering your life to the one who knows you best, an invitation to take a real rest, as Jesus says in Matthew 11, to walk with him, to live with him. It's an invitation to learn the unforced rhythms of grace. It's an invitation to live 
freely and rightly. This is John's reason for writing, and frankly, our reason for sitting in John's gospel for three months. In John 8, we find a story of a woman who is being used as a pawn by the powerful in order to turn the tide against Jesus. It's a fabricated situation that the religious leaders, they bring a woman caught in an adulterous relationship to Jesus and demand that Jesus condemn the woman. And their hope is that Jesus will make a, a theological or a cultural misstep and that the crowd will turn on Jesus and it will make it easier for them to condemn Jesus either to imprisonment or to death. And instead what Jesus does is he turns their attempts at condemnation on its head. And he reminds those that are gathered there of a few things. First, he reminds them that it's only the righteous that have the right to condemn the unrighteous. And every one of us are unrighteous. The second thing that Jesus shows is that he brings not condemnation, but rather he brings forgiveness and mercy and embrace and love. And then the last thing that we see that Jesus gives is a command, that, and that command is that we end our life of sin. Jesus invites us to lay aside our way of living that leads to death and to isolation. Jesus calls us to step into life with him, breaking off those ways of living that are contrary to the full life that God offers us through faith in Jesus. He invites us to a new start. And that's the message that I want to preach to you today. And I'll get to that. But first, we have to address another passage that happens just before what we read. In many of your Bibles, if you, if you haven't opened your Bible or pulled it up on your app, you may want to kind of take a look at this um, if you haven't seen this before. And many of your Bibles, uh, most of the ones actually, um, whether you have a printed or online version, there's a paragraph just before uh, John, uh, or just after John 7, verse 42, and before John 7, verse 43, which is where our story actually picks up. And the paragraph in the New International Version, which is the version that we preach from at Christ City Church, um, it says this. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through 8, 11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7, 36, John 21, 25, Luke 21, 38, or Luke 24, 53. So let me just pause for a minute and just say... Um, I have a friend who, who preached through John several years ago, and when we got to this point, the way that he described it, he said, you know that spot in your house, it may be a drawer, or it may be a closet, or it may be your garage, where you're like, ah, I'm going to have to deal with that at some point. Not really looking forward to it, but I'll be glad when I do, but ah. I'm going to be honest with you, like, this is one of those ah, mo kind of moments for me, because I want to I tackle this, but I want to tackle it faithfully. So let me explain to you what this little parenthetical paragraph means. And I want you to walk, uh, I want to walk you through uh, this, what it means for the Bible, and then what it means for us. So first, what it means is this. It means this. Uh, the earliest copies of the Bible, they actually don't include this story that we just read, the story of the woman caught in adultery. And the ones that did, and there's, there's just a few, and they happen really late. I'll explain it in a minute. The ones that do include it, um, they, uh, they have the story in different places. Um, some have the story in John 7.36, some have it later in John 7.44. Some of them have the story in John 21, way towards the end um, of the book. And other manuscripts, they have the story, but it's in a different gospel completely. It's in Luke's gospel. At some points, it's in uh, Luke 21. At others, it's in Luke 24. 
And the, uh, the overwhelming majority of New Testament biblical scholars, whether they're on the conservative end or the liberal end or the moderate end, the overwhelming majority of New Testament biblical scholars do not believe that John 8 verses 1 through 12 are part of the original writing of the Gospel of John. And I would stand with them in that. Nearly all of the scholars, that the pastors at Christ City that we rely on when exegeting the Bible, they believe that these verses, that they weren't original in the writing of John. And this list includes theologians such as Bruce Metzger, Leon Morris, Andreas Kostenberger, Herman Ritterboss, N.T. Wright, and Ben Witherington. Some of those names you're like, I don't know who that is. You can Google them later, listen to the podcast. Um, they're fantastic scholars. Now, among the, the top reasons why these scholars uh, believe this is, is this. First, the passage, it actually appears much later in manuscripts. And none of the earliest manuscripts actually contain this story. None of the early church fathers reference the story, but rather when they are writing and teaching through John, they move from John 7.42 immediately to John 8.13. And you can see, if you go back and read it, you can actually see how the story holds together there. Um, this inconsistency, it leads scholars to believe that, was at, that it was actually added into the text much later. And then, and then lastly, the passage, the, the 12 verses, they have a different form of Greek and, uh, that's found throughout the rest of John's gospel, and it's a different voice um, than that of John's. And there's other technical reasons, but these are the top three for why scholars across the theological spectrum, they don't believe that it was included in the original writing. Now, to understand how this can happen, just stick with me again, walk with me here, it helps to know how the New Testament came about. The New Testament was originally written in the Greek language, and each uh, book uh, within the New Testament, it was handwritten by a scribe. Um, that scribe would take previous copies of, say, in this instance, the Gospel of John, and they would handwrite each letter uh, and each word until it was finished. And in this way, the Gospels, the a book of Acts, Paul's letters, Peter's letters, John's letters, Revelation, all of them were copied one word at a time, one letter at a time, one book at a time by hand. The first printed versions of the Greek New Testament, uh, it wasn't mass produced in a printing press until 1516. So for 1500 years, we have these handwritten copies, one after another. It was actually this tedious and very time intensive process of hand copying multiple copies of the New Testament that the New Testament becomes, it actually becomes one of the strengths of uh, our contemporary copy of the Bible. Here's what I mean by that. These handwritten copies of the New Testament, they're spread over time. They're spread over uh, a couple of centuries, actually. And they're also spread over geographies. So some of the earliest manuscripts that we have of John's gospel, actually, date as early as 100 AD. But the majority of them, they do come from the second millennium. And they begin to show up not just across time, but also in different places. Obviously, they initially show up in the Middle East, in Israel and Palestine. But they also begin to show up in North Africa early on. They begin to show up in Asia Minor early on in parts of Europe as time goes on. And at this point, researchers have secured over 5,800 Greek manuscripts, handwritten Greek manuscripts of complete books or fragments of the books of the Bible. Now, that number for you, when I just say that 5,800, you're like, I have no idea how to gauge that number. How many is that? So let me sort of center it for you so that you can measure the amount of biblical manuscripts against other ancient works, particularly those that would have been from Greek antiquity. Here's what we've got. So, Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, it was, uh, which was written between 58 and 50 uh, BC. There's 10 existing manuscripts of that. 
There are 20 manuscripts of Livy's Roman history written roughly during the time that Jesus was alive. There's only 20 of those. There's only two manuscripts that exist for Tacitus histories and the annals, which were composed around 100 AD. There's one from the 9th and then one other from the 11th century. And there are only eight manuscripts of the history of Thictides, who lived between 460 and 400 BC. The only other ancient author whose works come even close to the number of manuscripts that we have for the New Testament is Homer, and we have under 2,400 from him. However, what happens with this massive uh, uh, number of manuscripts, there come some problems. Um, when you have copies of copies of copies, all done by hand, what you get are discrepancies in those copies. However, the vast majority, and by vast majority, I mean 75% of these discrepancies are in the categories of spelling errors. Uh, and by spelling errors, there's, um, it's called a, a floating new is what it is. So when I were to write um, um, a bike and an apple, I should have said an apple. And so what I mean, spelling errors, it's that, it's that kind of, that happens often. It's called a, I don't know why I told you guys that, but just, <laughs> the, so that's 75%. The next level, the next largest category of discrepancies in the area, are in the area of word order. And typically it's when words are reversed or placed in different order. It would be like saying the red ball versus the ball that is red. The thing is, in Greek, word order is really flexible. But nevertheless, these are the type of differences that are present. And at the end of the day, there is a tiny fraction of discrepancies, like what we see in John 8, where the differences have some substance to them. However, in none of the discrepancies are the central tenets of the Christian faith at stake. As New Testament scholar Daniel B. Wallace, who is at the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts at Dallas Theological Seminary notes, no cardinal belief is at stake. These variants do affect what a particular passage teaches, and that's what the Bible says in that place, but they do not jeopardize essential beliefs. So this is the problem that happens when you have multiple manuscripts, when you have thousands upon thousands of them. But there's also a solution that lies in that same thing. The other side of this problem set, though, um, is also a reassurance for us. While a large number of the manuscripts copied can create discrepancies and variants, they also serve as a corrective. The more manuscripts you have, the more of a control group you have over which readings might be the originals. If there were only two copies of John and one contained John 8, 1 through 12, and another didn't, we wouldn't know what to make of it. Rather, however, this isn't the case. Rather, the majority of the earliest manuscripts, they don't include the passage, which is why one of my favorite pastors and theologians from a previous era, Baptist minister F.F. F. Bruce, he puts it this way, if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors, so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is in truth remarkably small. So friends, when I say to you that this passage, though beloved and beautiful, was likely not in the original writing, we need not despair or thinking that, well, now all of the Bible is suspect, but rather, given the strength of the Bible's witness through history and the veracity of the volume of material that has been sustained over 2,000 years, we're able to identify with tremendous certainty the accuracy of the New Testament. 
And where there are discrepancies, none of them alter any doctrines of the Christian faith. And this remarkable feat that is carried through by the Spirit of God, and I hope is something with which you can with me rejoice, that God's word stands and is true and, and reveals his will, God's will and his work for us and for our salvation. To see this. So this might have you asking, okay, didn't follow all of that, but I'm with you. But what do I do with verses 1 through 12 of chapter 8? What are we going to talk about in small group this week with this verse? First, a couple of things I want to say. First, many of the same scholars um, and theologians, uh, particularly those that are on the, that are on the that would be on the more moderate and conservative ends of the theological spectrum. They, uh, they don't believe that this story was original in John's gospel, but they also believed, uh, believe it to be what's referred to as an agrapha, an oral story that was known to the church about Jesus. They believe that it's a story that actually happened and was known by those within the church, though it wasn't recorded in the gospels. The second thing to know is that um, it is a story that uh, carries in it all of the theological and character consistencies that we see in Jesus throughout the Gospels. As premier Catholic scholar Raymond Brown states, there is nothing in the story itself or its language that would forbid us to think of it as an early story concerning Jesus. Its succinct expression of the mercy of Jesus is as delicate as anything in Luke and its portrayal of Jesus as the serene judge has all the majesty that we would expect in John. In John 8, verses 1 through 12, we find a story quite consistent with Jesus' life and his teachings, and we find a story from which we can glean insight and comfort and correction. And so, with my concluding moments, I want to preach from John 8. Verses 1 through 12, trusting that the Spirit will illumine it for us and will cause us to fall in love more deeply with Jesus and with his word and with his world. So, verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees they brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman is caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us uh, to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using such question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. What immediately jumps out is the chasm between the intentions of the Pharisees, which were the religious leaders of the day, and that of Jesus. The story opens with Jesus in the temple courts where he's teaching. Now, we've mentioned this before as we've seen Jesus in and out of the temple courts and other spots. But the temple courts were part of the, of the structure of the temple in Jerusalem. And there were different courts within the temple structure. Some of them were for different populations. You had uh, the court of temple court for women you're the temple court for gentiles when joseph and mary first bring their newborn baby jesus to the temple they bring him to one of the temple courts to be blessed 
And it's in these courts, these very courts in the temple in Jerusalem where we find Jesus teaching in John 8 verse 2. And the aim and function and purpose of the courts of the temple were so that people might draw nearer and nearer to God. That was the reason they were built. So that folks may come to God, they may reach out to him, they may worship him, they may be reminded of his salvation and rescue of them. They were built so that those that were seeking relationship with God and those that sought to worship and those that sought to whatever had been frayed in their relationship with God, that they could do so in the temple courts. They were meant to be a place of healing and of celebration and of reunion. And so this is where Jesus taught anyone who would listen that God's kingdom was at hand and that salvation was for them. And so in the temple courts, Jesus taught. And the religious leaders, they took this same place and rather than teach, they made it into a trap. The very place that was designed for healing and instruction and care. The hardened leaders of the day looked to turn it into a place of traps and pain and accusation. They brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And the misogyny and hypocrisy in this story is thick. Pharisaic law required that there be witnesses to execute this task, which indicates that those bringing the woman would have witnessed her in the act. How do religious professionals catch a woman in the act of adultery, we might ask? Adultery is rather difficult to do alone. As New Testament scholar Ken Bailey wonders, and if she was caught in the act, her partner was seen and thereby identified, and the law dictated that both should have consequences. So where was the man? The fact that they brought the woman and not her male partner clearly indicates that their concern was not for the preservation of the law, but rather the public humiliation of the woman and of Jesus. And the woman was merely a plot in the trap, a, a prop in their trap. The Pharisees attempted to steal the woman's dignity and to bring further shame on her and Jesus in the process. However, Jesus, his aim is clear. He looks to give dignity and honor and turn the self-righteousness of the religious leaders on its head. Jesus doesn't bring condemnation, but he brings forgiveness. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, kept on with him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? No one condemned you. No one, sir, she says. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus matches their self-righteousness, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees with the righteousness of God. He says, okay, you want to enact judge, the judgments of the law? Fine, let those of you who have never broken any of the laws of God, you can throw the stones first and none of them will because to say that you are without sin would be blasphemy in the midst of the temple courts. And so they know that they all have sin on their souls as all of us do. We're all broken and fallen. We're all a long way away from Eden. We're all less put together than we put on. 
What Jesus is saying is that only the righteous have the right to condemn and every one of us gathered is unrighteous. And so the stones, they all fall to the ground. The oldest, they drop their stones first. Those who've lived the longest, who know the sting of living lives less than God intended. Those who have known what it is to be let down and to let others down, they, they leave first. And eventually everyone leaves. Because none of them and none of us are righteous or pure or whole on our own except for Jesus. Jesus remains because he's the only one who could remain. And he is the only one who had the right to judge. But Jesus doesn't bring accusation or judgment or condemnation. There's no sentence for her. Rather, he brings forgiveness and mercy and love and embrace. And his words to the woman and to us are, I don't condemn you. The one who could says, I don't condemn you. We have actually heard Jesus say this before. In John chapter 3, he says it to Nicodemus, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is why this passage doesn't, doesn't unsettle us, because it's in keeping with things that Jesus has said before. He doesn't come to bring condemnation. Jesus' purpose in coming into the world was to bring salvation and healing and a, a, a message that embodies God's love to those who would just believe in him. And the last thing that we see is that Jesus gives a command, and that command is to end our life of sin. Jesus ends the story by saying, go now and leave your life of sin. It's a, it's a command, but also it's an invitation. Jesus invites us to lay aside our way of living that leads to death and to isolation. He calls us to step into life with him, breaking off those ways of living that are contrary to the full life that God offers to us through faith in Jesus. He invites us to a new start, to start over and to begin again with him. I began this morning by saying that our purpose each Sunday was to encourage and remind one another we're called to live in light of and in the care of and in the joy of and in the momentum of and in the assurance of that love. And my deepest hope is that in this story, a story that has been passed down to us through hundreds of years, a story of a woman used and violated and dehumanized by the world, yet found and embraced and loved by God. My hope is that you experience Jesus as she did, as one who invites you to himself, as one who invites you to trust him, and to start again, and to know his love, and to live in the joyous light of that love. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is good, it's true. It's your revelation to us of your story, of your gospel, of your good news towards us. And Lord, we want to hear well from your word and place our faith and trust in the living word. 
the one who came not to condemn, but to offer life, to offer healing and rescue, to offer anchor in the midst of tempest. God, I pray that um, whatever is the weight that we might have come in here with, whatever is the, the burdens that we carry, either burdens that, that have been created by our own hand or by the hands of others that are on our shoulders, God, I, whatever is the shame that we come in here with, God, I pray that we would ever and always remember that you are a God that takes our shame and gives us honor. That you take our indignities and you restore dignity. That you, that you take embarrassment and you give us a seat at the table. That you take our isolation, you call us sons and daughters. God, it can be hard to remember that. It can be hard to believe that. Spirit, I pray for all of us that, that, you, that you'd break through whatever is our hesitancy there. By, by the strength and tenderness of your spirit that you'd help us break through whatever it is that finds us resisting. The God who brings not condemnation, but mercy and forgiveness and embrace. God, that we would come to you for the first time, whether we would come to you again. And we would step into the life that you invite us into. We pray all these things in the name of the God who rescues.